Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation and Hunter Advocacy, Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable, Trijicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions, Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter and other fine handguns. Mossberg, a leader in firearms since 1919. Hassel Cattle Company, the world's best jerky. And Wagyu Beef. Now, here's your host, Larry Weissen. Welcome to another campfire session. I'm here today with a very special friend, Miss Lori Woodward, who has been involved in the outdoors for at least two years. Uh, she and I go back to several years ago when she was with Texas Wildlife Association, did a lot of work there, and very much has her own company called Woodward Communications. And beyond all that, with the Texas Wildlife Association, happen to be a sponsor we're very proud of. But uh, you're in the process of putting together kind of an oral history on TWA, as I recall, based upon your questions. <laughs> well, based upon my questions, yes, indeed, I am. Because I've had the privilege of being involved with TWA um, as a contractor. I've never been on staff. Right. But I have been involved with TWA as a contractor since 1995. They were my first client and have been a client ever since then. And I'm very proud of that fact. Well, we're very proud that you've been there those years and continue <laughs> to be. This is going to be interesting because you're visiting with uh, a lot of different people who were there at the beginning of TWA. And I happen to be one of those guys. But uh, there's some other great people involved, David Langford and a whole bunch of other folks out there that I'm sure you'll get comments from, and it'll be really interesting when all this starts coming together and and uh, seeing where we did come from, where we went, where we're going, and all those other kind of things. But what, what got you in the outdoors, number one, and then what got you into the outdoor communication field? Well, you have to start, like with most stories, at the very beginning. Right. And so I'm a rancher's daughter. Yes. And I grew up in Lee County, Texas, in the Sand Hills, and we were a family that made our fun outside. You worked all day, and then I grew up in a house that had beagles, and, <laughs> you know, my daddy ran rabbits. We had bird dogs. We had cow dogs. We had coon dogs. We had frog gigs. We had fishing poles. Um 
so it was just part and parcel who I was. Right. When I graduated from high school, I was 18 and knew everything. Because, you know, that's how you are when you're 18. That is. And I looked at my daddy and I said out loud that I'm never going to look at the butt end of a cow again. (laughs) And how does that work out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it took me one semester at (laughs) A&M to realize that those were my people. Absolutely. Absolutely. The the people, and this is going to sound strange, but now you'll appreciate this. The people who can appreciate the beauty and the butt end of a cow. Those are my people. (laughs) (laughs) I can't understand that. I really really and truly can. I I grew up almost one county south of where you are, where you grew up. And of course, grew up in the cattle business, the hog business, the chicken business. And until till my brother came along and kind of grew up, I was my dad's automatic feeder and automatic water for all the, everything that needed to be done kind of thing. So I kind of felt that same way in, in, in a lot of different ways. But you talk about learning value and learning values in life and learning values in terms of the animals that you're around and the people you're around. What a great upbringing, though. Well, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Oh, heavens no. Because I laugh and, um, you know, when I first got started in this business and my background was ag journalism. Right. So I kind of came in on the ranching side of things. It was not uncommon for me to be the only woman in a room of 200 men. I'm sure that was the case, particularly, and, and that hadn't been that long ago. Well, but, it, it, uh, but relatively, because time gets by. I graduated from A&M in 87. So, I mean, it was um, yes. it, it was girls with mullet haircuts and big <laughs> shoulder pads because we needed to look like we played for Dallas <laughs> so that we were taken seriously. <laughs> but, but... The growing up part of it, and there were so many lessons, but the one thing that my daddy gave me was if there was a job to be done, you did it. You did it. And it didn't matter that I was five foot two and a buck five back in those little tiny days. You just did it. Or how long it took. Exactly. And it gives you a confidence going out into the world. Yes. Yes. And, and it wasn't made up work. Right. No, no, no. None of that was made up work. Huh? No. You're right. I mean, and you know, and I laughed even when I was raising my own kids, Larry. You know, if they didn't make their bed, their bed didn't get made. Right. Right. And, and there were consequences, but they were made up consequences, you know. Absolutely. But if you have bucket calves... And you decide to go play and they don't eat or you don't take care of your responsibility, something dies. Yes. It's a whole different dichotomy. It truly is. It truly is. And, and unfortunately, I don't know that too many people in today's world quite understand that as we've moved more to an urban situation and kind of gotten away from the land. But you're right. And the, I know that the land always has been very important as far as you're concerned. Well, it has because, and you know this too, it shapes you. And I've had the opportunity to see lots of things and do lots of things and go lots of places. And the thing that always struck me was when my battery was completely wiped out, 
when I had done everything that I could do. I could come back to mom and daddy's and go off our back porch and there's a hill, you know, it's sand hill country. And you look down over the barn and there's a tank. And when the weather's right, it steams and the sun's coming up on the east. And it was just, you were home. I mean, it was like your soul in that moment was restored and completed. And I don't know how to explain that to other people. No, that, that would be very difficult. But if you experienced it, then you understand. And let's hope more people have that opportunity to experience <laughs> those things. How did you get into writing? Were you always interested in writing? Uh, you know, that's a benefit of growing up in a little bitty school. Uh I ended up doing UIL, and a lot of times they pitch me the rule book on the way to somewhere. <laughs> yes. And more times than not, if it involved writing, I ended up coming out on top or pretty much on top. And so that kind of sunk in the back of my head. Maybe I can do this. But I got to A&M, and back in those days, you didn't have to declare a major until you were the end of your sophomore year. So I was general studies all the way, but had decided I liked agriculture. I liked the west side of campus. Those were my people. They had an ag journalism program, Yes, which for me was the perfect marriage of everything I loved. I am probably the only person in history that took honor Shakespeare and meat science in the same semester. (laughs) (laughs) That is a unique combination there, come to think of that. Yeah. Mm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Of course, my background, I got a while degree at A&M, but I took a tremendous number of English courses and journalism courses. And I was, I always loved to read ever since I've been a little bit of a kid. And of course, read, you know, some of the outdoor writers the old years, many years ago, and inspired to be one to be like them and, and never dreamed that it would happen. But, uh, but it has. It's amazing how things work out sometimes. Do you remember the first article you wrote? I, I well, we had to write for the battalion. Absolutely, yes. And yes, so you did. So, so the battalion yes. for anybody who's not fortunate enough to be an Aggie was the student newspaper um, of A and M. And at the time I was there, there were about forty eight thousand. So our homework was read by forty eight thousand people. Now I don't remember my first assignment. I remember the first thing that caused um, a kerfluffle. Kerfluffle? Okay. Well, and it was a good kerfluffle, but um, it was an op-ed piece because I've always never been short on an opinion. And um, it was my take on that it was agriculture students needed um, understanding, too. And it was this piece of where I had overheard these two little bow-headed sorority girls um, talking some smack about the goat ropers across West Campus. And this went on and was my defense in that moment of what the world owed those people. And that while they may not be veiled in the sheen of sophistication, that my daddy, 
could see the beauty in a dew-covered spider web, just as Michelangelo could see the beauty in a vein of Carrera marble. You know, I mean, and and so anyway, yes. it got me a date with the big man on campus, and it got me a letter from the dean, so I was hooked, man. I'm like, <laughs> power of the pen, go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely fantastic. And, and what, where, where from there? Where from there? Yeah, the, where'd the, you go from there? The trajectory was, that was the heyday of purebred cattle in Texas. Yes. Okay. And so um, A&M at the time had an internship with the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. And so, yes. you know, we went... And we were there the first time George Strait sold out oh that dome. Right. Um, and we were in the press box, you know, and I was all of 21. So, man, I was all in purebred cattle. So my first job was for the Brahmin Journal. Oh, and I lived in a trailer house in Eddy, Texas for a thousand dollars a month. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but. It was a tiny mom and pop shop and I got to do everything. I traveled all over Mexico. I traveled all over the Southeast. They'd pitch me a, you know, they pitch me a camera and they pitch me some paper and say, go. And you figure a lot of stuff out on the road, as you well know. Yes, you do. By the way, back then, did you know Bill or Bobby Hudgens? Oh, my gosh. Both have been dear friends for many, many years. Really? We were together at uh, Wharton County Junior College, so we've, we've stayed in touch over the years. Okay. Well, I ended up, and we won't tell this whole story on <laughs> on tape, but they're, is it brother or cousin Bubba Hudgens? I think cousin. Cousin. Think, okay. Yes. Well, anyway, he... And the executive director of the Brahman Association and I ended up on a field trip in Mexico. And um, let me just say, <laughs> I learned a lot about culture. Yeah, when you mentioned that name, we used to buy Hudson Bulls, but I got to know those guys. Not that anybody out there cares, maybe except for a few people who know what a raw cow is or brahma cow is or, or knows of the Hudson family. But uh, anyway, those were th th great guys. I, uh, Bill and I still visit every once in a while. So. Do you? Absolutely. Well, and from there... Um, I almost starved to death for nine or 10 months. And um, a friend of mine that I'd gone to school with at A&M had gone to Florida and had gone to work for their ag department. And she said, they need somebody who knows to do, who knows how to do what I know how to do. Come on out here. And so I went and lived in Florida for four years and um, thought I was going to stay there. And then, you know, personal lives blow up the way you don't ever imagine they do. And you come back smarter then you went <laughs> and I had the chance to come back and go to work for the ag department here in um, Austin. And so I started out working with producers directly and then it slipped out that I could write and I ended up eventually being the director of communications. Wow. We're going to come right back. I want to go to a little bit of a commercial break and then I want to learn some more about your time in Austin. 
when it comes to buying and selling real estate, particularly country that you might be interested in for recreational purposes, having anything to do with hunting, fishing, and the outdoors. Hayden Outdoors is the person you want to talk to, the person meaning the agent in that particular area. And you can find out who your local agent is by going to HaydenOutdoors.com. Now, if you're wanting to have a sharp knife, which, you know, the best way to have a sharp knife is to keep it a sharp knife. If you'll go to, uh, there's some different places you can go, but the warthog sharpener, such as what I have right here, is the ideal way to sharpen a knife. It can make anybody a, an expert when it comes to sharpening a knife. I grew up where everybody just used a whetstone and kind of kept their knife sharp that way. Well, times have changed, and now the, basically what you want to do is, is whenever you just go out and buy your warthog sharpener. It's, you can find them so many different places, and all you do is take your knife. This happens to be a, a custom knife that I use quite a bit, and if you're going to have a sharp knife, keep it sharp. The best way to do that is just simply keep one of these warthog rigs around. There are several different versions. This happens to be one that comes in a little case, ideal for travel to take in the back of a pack. But all you do is just lay the knife right along the edge of this straight edge and pull down. That is all there is. And if you want the sharpest edge there possibly is from selling, buying real estate, go to Hayden Outdoors. You want the finest sharpening mechanism there is in the world when it comes to keeping your knives sharp or sharpening the knife. That's Warthog Sharpening. Miss Lori, welcome back to the campfire. And you were headed to Austin from what I remember the last time we were talking about. I was indeed. I ended up in Austin, um, which for an Aggie girl. That would have been interesting. Well, because the view outside my window, when I qualified for a window, you know, that's a mark of bureaucracy is how long your title is and whether or not you get a window. Right. When I scored a window... I looked out over Memorial Stadium. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so Great it was, place it, for a serious Aggie to be, by golly. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, I was there in the communications division for five years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then personal life got involved again, and, you know, hairy leg wildlife biologist, <laughs> um, and ended up out in San Angelo. Of all places. Well, Great place, though. I love San Angelo. Well, it's a place that I grew to love. You can still see my fingernail marks (laughs) in the asphalt (laughs) when I left Austin, headed to Angelo. But it was the perfect place. It was the case of... You've heard people say that in the rearview mirror, you see where God's plan was better than yours. Yes, yes. And that's what happened there. Because had I been in Austin, it was my dream job. But I would have had to chosen between doing that job 150% and being a good mama or a full-time mama. And in San Angelo, I had the blessing of of having a job, working part-time, but being ever-present in my kid's life. And so for me, that was a gift I never anticipated when I had my corner office looking out in my big shoulder pads and, you know, yeah, I got a mullet. I got to feel the view is better in San Angelo anyway once you got there. I don't know. <laughs> they put me in the garage, no. but, you know, <laughs> had to lock the door on the top. Who were you working with when you were in San Angelo? That's when Woodward Communications was that, born. Okay. I got um, you. I left, I left Austin 
in February of 96. And I made my first phone call. So I guess I lied. I said 95, but it was February of 96 when I started with TWA. I had crossed paths as a volunteer a Mm -hmm. little bit with TWA. And I called David Langford and I said, I just want you to know that I'm hanging my shingle out. And he goes, well, I think we got a place where your shingle can go. And so that, <laughs> that was that was how we first started. And that's where I kind of got more into the conservation side right. of things. And I've always worked at that intersection of agriculture, public policy and conservation. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. That was a good combination when we got you over at TWA. I, I, I was so thrilled when you got there because I, I knew known a little bit about you up to that point, but then I started looking at some of the serious, seriously started looking at some things that you'd written or were writing, and, and I go, this lady's a good writer, and kind of like the way she thinks kind of thing. So. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, people ask, and I'm sure they ask you too, how do you write? And I don't know. The words line up in my head. It's like asking an auto mechanic, one of those that can just hear something. Right. And knows. And knows. And knows. And, and when it's working, it just lines up. And I'm sure when it's not, it doesn't. But <laughs> a, a lot of the, the the things I write take off on themselves. Mm-hmm. I get that. I get the first few words down, and then it just seems like okay, it, it takes the direction or whatever that direction is or needs to be. It just kind of happens. Uh, it's not that I'm consciously going. Well, this is going to do this. I mean, it's, it's just start hitting the keys, and next thing you know, things start working out. Of course, now with how we write, it's not like you get halfway through. Well, this isn't really where I wanted to go. Well, now you just go delete, delete, delete. You started try to start all over again. But the, the, you obviously have a passion for writing, and it's it's very obvious in your writing. Do you agree? I I do. I got here in love with words. Um, th- th- this is a for real story. I started talking when I was eight months old. My first word was meat. So I think I was predestined to be an agricultural journalist (laughs) or a restaurant critic. I'm not sure. Well, (laughs) yeah. But I've always loved to read and to write. And I was one of the kids that read the cereal box. You know, if I was still, I was reading something. You know what? That, that you know, we're in my office right here, and, and uh, you see a portion of the books. I'm very fortunate. My wife, Mary Ann's got probably forty times, fifty times, sixty times more books than I do. But she and I both love to read, and I think that was we, we were both that way from early on. Uh, to me, reading among other things, uh, I love the outdoors, and I love the outdoor magazine. To me, it was kind of an escape because of all the. We worked our tails off, quite frankly, because of the livestock businesses we were in. So to me, reading was an escape. And then it's like, well, if those guys can do that, I wonder if I could do that someday. And it's kind of evolved into that over a period of time. And same thing with TV. And, and we were talking in the TWA interview a little bit about how you, you learn to adapt if you're a writer. You learn to adapt to different markets. Or in my instance, to learn to adapt to TV and then to digital TV and a whole bunch of other things such as that. So, but you do. And I know that you've done some of the same thing. You talked about initially starting out pretty much right livestock. Mm-hmm. 
But then you evolve from that to where now you're a very highly respected writer of things having to do with conservation, wildlife conservation in particular. Well, and I think that the other part of being a writer, besides being a reader, is being curious. Yeah, and, and, yeah that's and, definitely got to be part of it. And so the perks of my job is I get to talk to a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am about a lot of different (laughs) things. And so it's exciting for me because I get to be nerd girl. (laughs) And I, I mean, as a writer, don't you have the same opportunity? It's, it's a trust that I take very seriously, but everybody I have ever encountered has a story and absolutely and i don't collect stuff no i collect stories and if you're genuinely interested in people there is not a better job on the planet you won't get a disagreement out of me one of the things that i did when i worked statewide or working as a biologist for the state of texas i've always had the ability to visit with landowners and uh in terms of talking their language because I grew up in that kind of situation and and they love wildlife. They love cattle. They love horses or whatever it is, whatever it is that they had kind of thing. But over the process of that, I ran into so many different characters who had stories to tell. And I loved a lot of those situations where years ago in a hunting camp or in a cow camp, which when I lived in Abilene, I, I worked for a year as as a day worker, pretty much working cattle for people to get to know the local ranchers. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we'd sit around and listen. I'd listen to them tell stories about, you know, where they were from, things they've done in the past and all these kind of things. Learned so much about them. And there was one gentleman, his name was O.D. Blackwell. And I'll tell the story very quickly. He, he was born into East Texas family with a lot of oil and gas, got into a little bit of tipping the bottle a little bit too much. They sent him out to Abilene. And then he was he was in his 70s probably when I first met him. And he'd come out when we were doing all the cow working because I worked with all the ranchers out there and whenever they were working cattle. And one day he approached me and he said, he, he, and he cussed biologists and he cussed us, you know, I'd, I'd cuss right along with him. One day he, we were out there and he goes, Larry, he said, you've got two young daughters. He said, I know you can't make a living doing day work like you've mm-hmm. done. He said, what do you do? For, what do you do when, when you're not helping these guys? I said, Mr. Blackwell said, I'm Wallach Wallach for the <laughs> Texas Park Wallach Park. And he let out this long string of cuss words and, and he goes, well, I'll be. And he said, if, you know, he said, from here on, he said, you can do no wrong in this part of the world. But it, he said, if, and if there's, you have a problem with any landowner, you tell them to come talk to O.D. Blackwell, you know, and I really appreciated that. But in the process of that, I got to meet so many doing that. I got to meet so many of the characters out there in that western part of the state where you ended up kind of around San Angelo where I have kin folks. But all that big country area to where you listen to all these stories and some of the stories were old time ranchers, of old time uh, law enforcement people who had grown up kind of around with Mary Ann's family and the stories that they told were phenomenal and they used to carry around a notebook and a, a, these days I'm just kind of plug it in on my phone kind of thing but there'll be one line that somebody said that I will write down and that one line tells a tremendous story that or you can build a tremendous story around and I know that you've done some of the same thing well and it, you know 
that was a gift of the time that I grew up. Yes. Um, yes. Because that's how we pass time. Absolutely. I was fortunate enough, you know, um, as a kid who talked early, <laughs> I was also about that tall and a lot wider. And I was quite content to sit still and talk. Yes. Um, so I got to know like all my great grandmothers and hear what it was like to immigrate from Denmark and go to Utah expecting to live with an aunt and an uncle only to discover that they practiced polygamy and she wasn't going to have any piece of that. I mean, exactly. and in making those trips and all of those stories came to life for me. Right. And it was just, it was better than TV. Oh, a whole lot better. A whole lot better. I mean, same way when I was growing up, my granddad and the, all the Greek uncles and great grandfathers that sit around on the front porch and you'd watch the fireflies fly by and down in our part of the country and, and they told stories, but they, but they were real stories. Yeah. I mean, they, they were stories about their life and their experiences. And to me as a writer, Although I don't get a chance to write about it as much now, that was something that I used to do a lot of. Uh, you mentioned the agriculture thing. The Western Livestock Weekly was there in uh, in San Angelo, which was a weekly newspaper right. that, that Elmer Kelton and his son Steve later ran, and I knew both of them fairly well. But I worked for one of their competitors called Southern Livestock Standard. Okay. And I, I did a weekly column there for years called View from the Pear Flat, and they would just let me... Rome <laughs> and tell stories. I mean, they're inside. So I, I, I retold a lot of the stories fairly close to what some of the originals were, but also th those key words got to know a lot of different people. And then I'd write down the line and I go, man, this can make a great storyline or it will be a line in the story. And to me, that was the fun writing over the years. I've, I've done a lot of writing, always enjoyed it, but there's some things that I've written technical pieces about guns and ammo and all those other kind of things that, uh, they were okay, but they weren't as much, nearly as much fun to write as what to me is a story where there is something there with, it's fun to read. <laughs> well, but when you work for yourself, I mean, there is a fact of life called buttering your bread. Yes. And so I have written about cleaning services. I have written about <laughs> hardware stores. I have written about, you know, <laughs> hospital procedures because it's all about keeping the bread buttered. And then you get to go Absolutely. have a campfire story every now and again. Absolutely. To me, those we I think in some respects we've lost some of that. We talked some in the past about people's attention span. And, and uh, these days, if you tell a story, it's got to keep people on the edge of their seat almost from the word go. And and uh, so the, the chances sometimes of, of writing what we really like to write or that yeah, I think both you and I like to read, those, those opportunities have decreased somewhat. But... With the internet, I do I do anywhere from eight to forty blogs a month, and a lot of those are for outdoor groups or outdoor mm -hmm. products that allow me to tell a story. and And based upon the response that we get from where you tell a story, as opposed to where you present a recipe, I think a lot more people are going back to where they want to hear a story as part of the deal. Well, and it's interesting because the. When I first started doing a little bit of writing for the Internet, everybody wanted it short. 
I mean, that that was, yes. you know, 120 characters or whatever. And don't yeah. get me started on whether we can promulgate national policy from any side of the equation with a tweet. But that's a whole different soapbox. <laughs> exactly. But um, now... The guys I'm working with are like, no, we need it to be 1,500 to 2,000 right. words to gain the traction. And I'm like, yep. which makes me happy because I never met a detail I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. My former business partner, we had a regional magazine down here based in Round right. Top. And uh, she used to laugh and she said, you ask me to write about a dog, and you're going to know it's a black dog. You ask Laurie to write about a dog, you're going to know about the dog, what the conditioner that they put on it, who the dog's mama was, what the dog had for breakfast. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah, because that dog, you need a complete sense of, of, of who that dog is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so thrilled we have these markets today because most of the stuff that I write, we're Talking earlier, I wrote for a while for Jay Wayne Fears, dear, dear friend, great, great writer who was the editor of uh, Real Sportsman within Progressive Farmer magazine. And he would call and says, I need 321 words on this topic. And the topic would be one that you could literally write books on. Mm-hmm. But and then still write it such that somebody that you kind of satisfied both the guy that just wanted a recipe and the other. Those were such tough writing topics. I mean, such writing hard to write because of the vast volume of information that you felt like you needed to include and couldn't. But again, with the uh, as you just mentioned with the blogs that I'm writing these days, most of those are fifteen hundred to two thousand words. Mm-hmm. And they do allow me to develop a story, even if it's about a product or, uh, you know, in coming up with fun lines. I've tried now with so very often because there is, <clears throat> to me, the spoken word communication. A lot of times my stories start with conversations between people. And basically I'll come back to conversations between people. And if nothing else, if they don't read it, at least I've said, okay, so-and-so said. <laughs> <laughs> what it, it, with your writing is there anything that's in particular obviously the storytelling and all that is so very important but is there any particular writing style or topics that you enjoy writing about more than others the things that I truly love to do is I have a warped sense of humor and and that's what I call my for fun writing right. It's just observational things. Right. And, and I don't publish that. I have a blog space and I just play on that periodically. But the for pay things that I most enjoy is profile pieces. I love to be able to talk to somebody for two or three hours and really find out what makes them tick. And that right. goes back to being able to earn their trust and hold it exactly. and, and have them recognize that their story is worthy of being told. Because most people are like, well, I haven't done anything interesting. Mm, I'm like, I, 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 I bet you have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I bet you have. And then every once in a while, like right now, ecosystem services is emerging right that whole notion of the potential opportunity for landowners to get paid for the voluntary stewardship that they have done and have provided public good for so long and because that's an emerging topic 
I've been taking a deep dive on that because it feels very important that people get informed so that they can make good decisions. I don't know yet whether it's going to hold up, whether it's going to vanish tomorrow. But right now, it's a potential opportunity that people need to be aware of and be evaluating it based on good information for their own operation. So we're not think it makes a difference. I get a little jazzed about making sure it's right. Exactly. And getting that out there. That, that, that's very basic for, to many of the things that we do uh, as wildlife biologists. As, even to me as an outdoor writer, I think that's very important, particularly from from the wildlife conservation aspect of it is my whole deal is, is I want people to have an edu- an educated opinion, if you will, uh, based upon real facts rather than hysteria. And it's getting that information out in a manner such that they can, it's easily digested. It's fun to read and to where they pick up key characters within what you present so they can make an educated, uh, or, Create an uh, educated opinion, and to me, that's really tough at times. You know, how do you do? How do you how do you marry all these things together? I, sometimes it works better than others. Let's be honest. And, 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 you know, and to me, sometimes that's really not. The, I throw conversation into it because uh, I can have a character that I've talked to or even a made up character that is me when you get right down to it uh-huh. saying something and but if you can say it in an entertaining manner such that somebody picks something up on it well that's what I'm trying to do again I want you to have a I want you to base your opinion based upon facts upon real life instead of something that somebody just totally made up. Well, and I will tell you, this was my aha moment that made me realize that perhaps I was getting a little old and setting my ways. I had an assignment um, for a, a big statewide publication here in Texas. It's one of those that everybody knows its name. And it wasn't a big assignment. It's 300 little words, 400 little words, just a little something. Right. I generally, because I do this to butter my bread, I don't have to do things twice, usually. Right. Right. I mean, I, you, you can't afford that. No, 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 no. I know exactly what you're saying. But but in this particular case, it's the first time I'd ever written for him. I turned it in. The young woman I was working with said, nope, 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 nope. You need to do this and this and this and this and this. So I went back. I did it again, and I'm thinking she may have been 12, and I'm sorry for anybody who's 12 and who's listening, (laughs) but, you know, so I did what she said, and I turned it in the second time, and she said to me over the telephone, and I'm so glad she was over the telephone, she said, Laurie, do you know what the problem is with your writing? And now you need to know that I've been doing this now for whole lot of years and and i'm i'm always open to constructive criticism you know i'm I'm all absolutely but she had the temerity to tell me that the problem with my writing was i wanted somebody to learn something and i just oh my god (laughs) i'm laughing at this thought even even no no oh my god How, how can you 
I, I mean, I was like, why are you in this business? I understand it needs to be entertaining. And we're not talking like I wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica here. I think I wrote that it takes one million bees to make a pound of honey. I mean, right. you know, right. what, whatever it was, wasn't a million bees, but a million whatever right. pollen to make a pound of honey. And that was too much information. And I'm like... The fate of, of American <laughs> journalism is in question, people. <laughs> in a big question right there. Oh, my gosh. No, it, it was hard. I never, I've never queried them again because I'm like, no, I'm not. Uh, no. <laughs> I will not consciously be part of the dumbing down of America. <laughs> no, 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 no. <sighs> Golly, uh-huh. I, I don't know how to respond to that, to be honest with you. Uh, well, it left me a little flat-footed. <laughs> My gracious. We're going to have to close this out here. Okay. For, it, but before we do, tell me, I mean, you've been involved in writing. I, I saw my first national article in 1970. Okay. That's 52 years ago. I guess, yeah. You know, so and like you, I've been in this business for a long, long time, and I've always loved to write, and I will, as long as I can put a thought together and hit a key to make that come out because I'm more close to it, I'll probably continue writing. And there, I know that there are a lot of people who are don't think they can write. A lot of people can write. Mm-hmm. They're not writing, and they're good storytellers and all that. But if somebody comes up to you and says, uh, I, I, I think I've got a story to tell, or I think I can help in spreading information that is educational mm-hmm. uh, to the uh, opposite of what that editor just told you kind of thing. But what kind of advice do you give those people, or do you give them advice? The the advice that I would give anybody who wants to write um and the first part would be targeted to young people because I watched my children come up through a school system that was vastly different than mine. Yes. Where they learned to edit, but they did not learn how to construct sentences. Right. Yes. So my first part would be is just master the basic construction of the language. Right. Practice until you know where the parts go. The second thing that I always tell people, and this goes back to what we talked about, is read, 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 and read some more. Right. Um, and then the thing that has given me a leg up, there's been two things. One is I got into this world with a broad-based liberal arts education, but I had a technical specialization. So just like you, where you said you talked to landowners and you spoke the language, I had looked at a butt end of a cow. Exactly. And and, and it, it translated because those walls fell down. I didn't wear my hat backwards, right. you know, when I right. stepped onto their property. So I would say whatever <laughs> you're interested in, master master that to start with and then branch out from that. And then the other thing that has served me well is people who are creative in the broader world have a bad reputation for being a flake. And if somebody tells you a deadline is sometime, if you got to stay up for two nights in a row, you meet that deadline and you be dependable and reliable and the phone will continue to ring. 
You're right. I, over the years, and I've literally, I've done, I used to do 200 plus feature articles a year. <laughs> you know, I've got the, over the years, I've missed one deadline. And there were extenuating circumstances as to why I, I missed that one. And unfortunately, thankfully, I had, had the editor was a very understanding editor because he was somebody that I had dealt with a lot and was always at least a week or so ahead of deadline kind of thing. But you're right. That's exactly right. Learn, learn what you can. Write about what you know. I've seen some things, particularly in the gun world, where people are writing about certain things and they have no real knowledge of what they're doing. And it, it shows. We live in a time when there is a very sophisticated audience of what they read and mm-hmm. the genre that they read. But we, we mentioned, do you ever sit down in front of a, a computer and you just start writing? During COVID, I did. Um. And I just wrote about real life. Right. Yeah. But but a lot of people use writing as an outlet. Right. And because I do it for hours a day. Right. It's not my relaxation. I don't find time to write for the fun of it. Right. Like other people might. And I regret that. I should make time. But to you do enjoy that. while you're writing as well, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. If not, I would have had to find something to do a long time ago. (laughs) Okay. One more thing for you. Okay. You you do edit a fair amount of things, don't you? Yes. I'm I'm talking playing the the part of an editor. (laughs) Yes. And I know that uh, I saw Greg Simons this week. And Uh Greg, I think Greg's book is finally ready to... Go to print. Is that right? That is because I want to have him on here before too very long to talk about his book. My understanding was is his goal was to have it print ready by the fifteenth. So he's got four days. (laughs) He's got four days. Well, I think when he and I talked in Dallas at Dallas Marta this past weekend, he said he he had either just sent it or was in the process of sending every all the files over. So I think. And they did, we'll have Greg Simons on. Greg's been on with me in the past, but Greg is one of my young heroes, if you will, and somebody I really kind of look up to for so many different reasons. But uh, he's got a new book coming out as far as wildlife management is concerned. And, and from having looked over it and, and having written the forward for it and all that other kind of stuff, I can't wait for that book to get here. And I know that you had a big hand in, in making sure those words came out the way that he thought they should. <laughs> well, I hope so. We have a running joke, and that is is that Greg Simons never met a word he didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he quoted me that when uh, when we were talking the other day kind of thing. But we'll have Greg on, and then I'd, I'd love to have you back on somewhere down the road. But in, in terms of writing a sign for us, editing, or some of the many other things that you're involved with with mm-hmm. your communication company, how does somebody get in touch with you? The easiest way is email, and my email address is woodcom, which is short for Woodward Communications, W-O-O-D-C-O-M 87 at gmail.com. Toss that one more time. Woodcom, W-O-O-D-C-O-M 87, as in class of 87, whoop, <laughs> at gmail.com. 
<laughs> Spoken like a true Aggie. <laughs> Miss Laurie, thank you so much for doing us around the campfire. I, I really, after Greg gets his book out and then we get a chance to look at it, I'd really like to bring you back on and, and maybe I can get both he and you together at the same time and, and the three of us can sit down. We'll find a campfire somewhere between here and San Angelo that we can, maybe we'll build our own Aggie bonfire. How about that? That sounds fabulous. And I can tell you about the first time that I met Greg Simons, um, and, and he had the shortest shorts on of any man I've ever seen in a Magnum P.I. mustache. <laughs> I, I, I remember the Magnum P.I. mustache, and I, I won't say anything about the shorts. So. <laughs> it was 1980-something, and I'm still scarred. <laughs> I love it. Miss Lori, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to get you back around the campfire. Y'all join us right back here next week. DSC Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by Double Nickel Taxidermy, preserving your outdoor memories. Burham Brothers Game Calls, the callingest call made. Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. And the Crown Bar of LaGrange and Round Top, Texas. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But... As I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.